Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, depending on where you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer viewer-submitted questions. The second hour is typically a deeper dive into a topic, and all this week we are doing brainstorming. And what that means is basically we are planning for the year coming up, or at least the quarter coming up, and we're planning our topics. So if you have ideas for topics, topics in the video production and multimedia space and adjacent areas like editing, storytelling, direction, stuff like that, both hardware, software, and on-set people skills. If you have ideas about any of those, put them in the second hour in Mukana today and we will discuss them. So this is your big chance to kind of drive content in the show for the coming quarter. Uh, that said, Mitch, let's dive into our regular questions today. So first hour questions, what do we got? Thank you, Bill. We have uh, a big panel, and uh, therefore we have a lot of people ready to answer these questions. First, one in from David Paskin in Miami, Florida. David's also on our panel. Yesterday, a bunch of essential apps showed up in Zoom. Which of these are really essential? Which have you worked with? Yeah, this is one of these great questions we get the day something comes out and nobody has much experience with it, I don't think. So anyway, uh, yeah, I saw them uh, when I took a look and it looks really interesting. They've got some apps that are going in there. We've got a couple of people who have a little experience. So David Paskin, start us out of here. Well, I, yeah, I don't have any experience, but they all showed up. They're just lined up there on the right side of my Zoom. I have no idea what any of them do. Um, I, I sort of wish if I you know, were to hover over them that I'd get some sort of pop-up. I mean, it tells me the name when I hover over it, but I don't know. I, I mean, and, and of course, I also got emails from a couple of the ones that I've been been using in the past saying, hey, we were just chosen as an essential app. Can you believe it? So um, it's it's an interesting, and I think what most of these, these apps are doing is they're giving us one year free, and then they'll start charging all of us. Ah, uh, Mitch, your thoughts? A uh, little uh, trouble trying to get rid of it because I didn't want to see it. Uh, but at the very bottom on the right, there's a uh, ellipsis there. And if you can chase it down without it disappearing every time you roll over it, it's like a game. Uh, if you click on it, you get a, a menu that says you can uh, eliminate that or close that particular dock. But uh, it took me a while to figure out how to get to it. Jesse Kester. It seems like the app developers were also caught off guard because there are uh, typos in some of the descriptions of the software. So this is definitely a 1.0 version here. All right. Let's, uh, that's all we know about it today. Sorry, David. Uh, it's, it's brand new for everybody. I'm sure we'll be talking about it more as the week goes along. Let's head to the next question. And continuing with Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York, asking, is it ever okay to use the second Thunderbolt port on devices or should deck links, docks, SSD raids, and audio interfaces be on a separate Thunderbolt input on the Mac Studio? And you're lucky today because no less a, a prestigious panelist than Oliver Breidenbach, who's here from Mimo Live, is on the panel and he raised his hand for this. So, Oliver, how are you? Good to see you. Hey, good to see you. Yeah, so generally, um, of course, it's better to have uh, the devices uh, uh, a dedicated uh, Thunderbolt bus uh, for each device, uh, but it's no problem. Uh, to daisy chain them, um, I've done it a couple of times with uh, uh, displays and uh, and capture devices. Uh, usually, no problem. Uh, you can go um, into the about this Mac, uh, and there, if you scroll down, there's a button that says uh, System Report, and if you click on that, and there's a category called Thunderbolt. If you click on that, you see how many. Um, uh, Thunderbolt um, 
uh, channel. <laughs> how, how many Thunderbolt devices you? How many Thunderbolt thingies you have, and and you can see what devices are connected to which of them, and uh, just make sure that you balance them out nicely, and uh, you should be go good. So, fair enough. Chris Fenwick has some thoughts too. I would also recommend, and I've I've done this, and it's kind of alarming. Um, if you have anything more than just the absolute bare minimum, turn your computer on, balance your checkbook, turn it off. I would recommend that you make a USB slash Thunderbolt map of your um, computer. Map everything that you have plugged in. Uh, as uh, Oliver mentioned, you can keep track of what uh, bus it's on. Um, but you can see the things that are daisy chained together. It's very easy as you start adding, you know, a webcam here, a microphone there, a stream deck, whatever. There are certain things that you can, um, uh, where a certain amount of um, latency is is acceptable. Like I have no problem plugging a stream deck into a hub. Uh, I definitely don't want to plug my audio device into a hub. And it allows you to sort of logically figure out that stuff. Um, I have things uh, chained, uh, m uh, mini devices long, and it's it's frightening. So that's why I ended up drawing out a map of it. Fair enough. And Oliver had another thought here. Oliver? Yeah, it's, it's a good idea to do this, uh, but you actually don't have to do it manually because you can go into the system report and it will draw out the map for you so you see exactly right what now, devicely, what devices are connected to what bus and even the hierarchy if you have multiple uh, 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 multiple uh, hubs connected to each other and also I wanted to add that there's now available a couple of Thunderbolt hubs uh, which is um, been in the specs for from the beginning and Apple added support to that on Monterey. And now you can buy a Thunderbolt hub and extend the number of Thunderbolt uh, connections you have on your computer, on your Mac. Um, if you have only one Thunderbolt co uh, connector or two, you can add a hub and add that, uh, you know, extend that easily to five or six uh, Thunderbolt connections. And it's important to uh, also distinguish between Thunderbolt and USB-C and USB. They are the same connectors, but they are different things. And if you uh, mix up the devices in the wrong, uh, you know, combination, you might end up with, uh, you know, some adverse um, performance uh, uh, problems when you hook up, for example, a Thunderbolt uh, device to a USB-C hub. That's not going to make you very happy. <laughs> Is it still the case? I remember on some of the uh, lower end Macs back in the day, particularly the really thin ones, there was two ports and they were shared. And if you got into the wrong port, it created some problems. Is that still the case or does everything get the same bandwidth? Do you know, Oliver? Well, the Thunderbolt 4 ports, um, you, you, can, you can check how many buses you have. And uh, there is the possibility that some connectors use the same bus. Um, but that's, uh, you know, Thunderbolt is uh, slightly different from USB. And so it's usually not a problem um, because it's very, very, very fast. Um, uh, and uh, so you, you you don't run into the same kind of issues that you did back in the day. But uh, it's still, I mean, it's still a good idea to know um, sort of the tree 
hierarchy of the devices and make sure that the critical ones get um, as high as high up in the hierarchy as possible. Excellent. All right, Chris Fenwick had another thought, Chris. So Oliver, you mentioned that you could get the system to to draw this out for you. Can you give us a hint as to how to do that? Um, you go to the Apple menu, to the Apple menu, and then there you go. Uh, do, do you have, um, I, I only have Ventura now. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it was a little different uh, because if you click on the About This Mac. Um, yeah, you have to go because there's a couple of extra clicks in there. I can see yes, all yes. of the, the devices, but you you said you could, and and, and maybe you were, uh, you said you could draw a, a Oh no no yeah uh, okay it's just a list correct it's 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 just a hierarchical list it's like okay. an outline so Perfect. thank you but it's 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 I mean you know um, the, the less work you have to do the better it is right so amen to that Mitch you had another thought yeah USB C and Thunderbolt four they look alike um, unless they have this on them the little uh, lightning bolt and a four the OWC do that which is very convenient and the OWC dock and hub will uh, duplicate the uh, Thunderbolt, uh, as Oliver was suggesting. Okay, we've talked through this. Let's head to the next question. Moving on to Douglas Carmichael, Samsung has introduced an AI-based SDR to HDR conversion in their 2023 TV lineup, with features from NFT stores to telehealth added to Samsung's 2023 range. By the way, is LG OLED still the panel's TV preference? And Courtney Gooden's going to start us off here. Courtney? Well, I recently had to buy a new TV set, and I looked at the LG OLEDs, and I looked at the Samsungs, and I chose the Samsung over the LG because the QLEDs uh, are able to achieve a higher level of brightness and don't have the burn-in problems of the OLED panels. Uh, they seem to have a little bit longer life, and they, they can get uh, handle HDR in a, in a much higher range, can get a much uh, higher lumens in the uh, highlights. Uh, with the uh, mini LED with local dimming, and a, and a quantum dot uh, filter and the LCD. Uh, so that's what I went with. So uh, you're, <laughs> I'm not sure what uh, what's available. I haven't looked at the uh, announcements coming out of uh, CES today to look at the uh, new offerings from uh, Samsung. Of course, uh, uh, all the latest bells and whistles will be on the new ones, and I can't wait to see what's coming up, but I probably won't be buying another one for a couple of years. So I'm sticking with the 2022 model. Mitch? Yeah, keep in mind that uh, there's only a few manufacturers of the actual panels, maybe four total in the entire world. So a lot of these companies like LG and Sony share the same uh, panels, but their electronics are different. So if we're talking about uh, an AI or other thing like Sony has a thing called an X1 uh, exponential processor that it does to uh, process the video on it, especially if an OLED, which I do, um, which looks great. I mean, it seems to be doing a good job. I just wonder whether directors at movies like the idea of the uh, TV monkeying with their uh, color grading. Nigel. Yeah, I'm not sure I would say OLED was my choice. I had an OLED television. I will never do that again because it burnt in. So I, I would, uh, I know we have individual tastes. I'd probably go with a QLED uh, from Samsung, uh, I would do something like that. And Samsung, interestingly, announced a 77-inch television, which was a new size on me. So it sort of goes 55, 65, 77. And that's where their uh, new TVs are going. So it's an interesting number. But I, I, I would be very careful about OLED unless you really want to manage it. Sky. 
And on the budget side, the TCL uh, monitor, I bought mine from Best Buy. It's it's very sharp, very crisp, and uh, very thrifty. Tom Ferguson. My LG C-Series is only a couple of years old, so I'm not in the market yet. But if you are, you're probably going to have to wait till May or June before these TVs really come out. All right. I think we've covered that. Next question. From Paul Buchan in Columbus, Ohio, found the United States Geological Survey LIDAR Explorer yesterday. And I'm curious, what all, all one could do with all that data that's available? Could you do a virtual site survey for outdoor venue? What tools and software would you use to get measurements? And um, we've been talking a good little bit about LIDAR here on the show. Um, Alex is very, very kind of forward-looking in that and has a lot of good information for us. And from what I understand, um, the tools you use and the amount of time you take uh, really has a lot to do with the quality of the results you get out of a LIDAR scan. I know that things are getting better and better, and, and Alex has been talking recently about uh, additional hardware coming out and additional capabilities of multiple pieces of hardware talking to each other to do even better LIDAR scans. So I'm sure as that happens, site surveys are going to get easier and faster and you'll get better results from them, but um, it's a developing technology. And so... Um, that's about as much as I can cover. Uh, so check back uh, another time. Thank you very much. And let's dive to the next question. From Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, Graham asked, I have a camcorder mounted atop a 20-foot mast. The entire mast rotates to pan on a bearing of two nylon discs if it was never going to be as smooth as a fluid head. But would lubrication help? And if so, with what? Courtney Gooden. Uh, lubrication might help. I've never heard of a bearing... Well, a bearing with nylon, uh, but maybe the nylon is there to make, to smooth out the pan. And what you might do is look for something. Oops, sorry. Look for some. I just disappeared. Look for something uh, like this uh, marine lubricant that has Teflon in it. Uh, this is available on, of course, our old friend Amazon. Um, it's designed for outdoor and the weather. And if your bearing is mounted outdoor and the Teflon in the lubricant will slow down and smooth out the pan uh, as uh, put a layer of it between the two nylon plates. And uh, that could give you a little smoother turn. It won't be able to do quick, rapid, rapid pans, but it may make it look a little more like a, uh, a fluid head. Oliver. Yeah, just uh, just a quick note. Um, I've, I've used uh, a, a very high mast as well. Um, but I put a PTC camera on top of it, and if you use NDI, and that's a very good use of that, um, you run only one cable up the mast, and uh, it you have full control over the camera and a very smooth movement, and you don't have the whole mast to move around, uh, which might be a, a, a good alternative to trying to move the whole mast. That makes sense. Make the pan tilt on the head, not on the mast. Uh, I wonder if that most of those masts that I've run into have been in ENG vans and they were there to allow a dish to go up and point at the top of a mountain for signal. They're not really designed to be a camera moving thing. So, yeah, that, that seems like a really good suggestion to me. Next question. David Brady, New York, New York, asking, is the USB port on the back of the Meta Portal TV usable? Can I hang an external microphone off this port? He's asking for a friend. <laughs> David Paskin will help you. Well, I don't know if I'll help you. Um, there, there are three ports on the back. There's um, the HDMI, power, and USB-C. Um, 
I've never used the USB-C. Uh, from what I've read, from what I can see, it's primarily used um, with a dongle to connect it to Ethernet, so you don't have to rely, rely on Wi-Fi. Um, so I don't think it supports audio, um, but that would be interesting. I have to say, I love this thing. I just used it the other day. Um, I had a, an event in someone's house. I popped on top of their TV, plugged the HDMI in, and was able to zoom our, our thing with no setup. It was just fantastic. It's sad to me that they've discontinued them. Understood. Next question. It's from Andy Kuchendorfer in Vieira, Florida, asking advice on headphones for music that fit big heads. I tried the Bayer Dynamic DT770 Pro, and they don't fit. Thanks. Mitchell, help us. Um, I have a big head. Um, not figuratively and literally, uh, and I use the Sony 7506s. I can't speak to the buyer, but um, I seem to be okay. They they stretch, which is the important thing. Yeah, I use the same thing, and I have a relatively large noggin. The 7506s, the thing you want to look for is when you pull down on the earphones, do they have a sliding band? Because that, as it comes down, will allow them to go wider. So if it's a fixed over-the-head thing, you might have problems. But if it's adjustable, you should have a better, uh, better solution there. Courtney? Sorry, I was trying to untangle mine, so I can that straight. This is an MV6, which is a, has been replaced by the 7506. This is the coveted MV6. But you'll notice uh, one side has an adjustment, so it can adjust for larger noggins like myself. So you pull that down, and it gives you a little broader and looser uh, clamp on your head if you're going to clamp your two ears to keep them from falling off your head. Yeah. Sky. And my 7506s are in the next room. The upside of those are that you can also replace the 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 foam um comforters so consequently you might be able to adjust uh that as well if you needed to all right next question oliver breidenbach from salzburg austria and here on the panel is anyone on the panel aware of an add-in to powerpoint that would allow executing an http request to remotely trigger things like lights or layers in mimo live i'm currently having one developed but would love to avoid the investment Boy, to the best of my knowledge, I've never heard of anybody being able to execute HTTP from a remote kind of trigger inside PowerPoint or Keynote for that matter. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I've never seen anything. So unless anybody else on the panel uh, nods differently, uh, sorry, at this point, we don't, Olive. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael asking, with all the advantages of digital first advance, why do you think CES hasn't transitioned to being a digital first show? Mitch, start us off. It's a very big show. There's a lot of money involved and anything that happens is going to be like a big ship at sea. It's going to turn very slowly, but I think we're already seeing the, uh, the effects of uh, people wanting to uh, go to a digital type format. Jesse? Uh, if you're a vendor at CES and they go to digital first, the question is, why am I relying on their infrastructure to speak directly to customers that would be excited about my product products? And then you start to migrate over to your own platform to do your own keynote speeches. And then the second question is, why am I doing it this weekend when there's so much other noise from so many other companies that are trying to divert attention away from my announcement? And then suddenly you don't have a CES anymore. Nigel? I think there are lots of reasons, and it's everything from people like to meet people. If you see the picture of Predo and team, people like to get with people, and that's a great chance to do it. 
I think if you're a smaller company, uh, you just disappear into the noise and there's a chance that people walking around the huge booths will bump into you. I think if you're a larger company, um, you've got dealers and brokers all over the world. It's almost impossible to have a physical communication with all of them. But in uh, a time like CS, you can get to the major ones. You can wind them, you can dine them, you can show how they're important to you. I mean, there are so many things outside the show floor, outside the announcements that happen at CES. Uh, my experience with CS was I got stuck in a small office and every 30 minutes the person I was talking to changed and I got through, you know, 20 or 30 key partners or journalists, which physically would have been impossible to do any other way. And so I think there are lots of benefits outside product announcement and outside the show floor that happen around CES. But if nothing else, as the first person said, this thing has a very long tail on it. And I don't know what the critical mass of number is. I've heard 100,000 went this year. I don't know if it's 75,000 or 50,000. At some point, it won't be economic. But I think we're still way off that. Liberty? Totally agree with Nigel's last part. Well, all of what Nigel said, but specifically that last part of like how long it would take to get there. They're probably planning, but also when you think about They've created something that where everybody's gravitating to. I have so many associates and friends that are out there connecting with people. So that's one plane ticket, one hotel room in order for them to connect with all of that. And the value of that, especially for an emerging or a growing business, it is invaluable. So they understand that they've built something that is tremendous and can provide uh, the product announcements and all of that. So for them to make that shift, it will take a little while, but there's still so much tremendous value for the in-person aspect of it. Courtney. Yeah, I don't see it going away. The digital first they'll use for product announcements the week before CES so that they can command a little bit of uh, you know, uh, notoriety on the internet before they uh, everybody arrives in Vegas. And it's that one-to-one networking that you get in the, the main event, the in-person event, that you will never duplicate in a digital first uh, situation. Because you have the, uh, you know, in a digital first, it's mainly uh, everyone attending other, you know, than the uh, exhibitors is passively listening to what the exhibitors are putting out and you can't really communicate with them uh, on a one-to-one basis. I find that at the trade shows, one thing I used to love doing is seeing a new product and finding the product manager and giving him my ideas on what would make the product better before the product comes out. And you actually have a chance of influencing uh, features on a product that has yet to be released that they're showing at that show. And you would never have the chance to do that at a digital first event. Tom Ferguson. And finally, I can't imagine being impressed with a 97-inch monitor looking at my 27-inch monitor. Being there in person makes a big difference. Yeah, my comment on all this is that also I was surprised to find that the trade show cycle also used to affect product development cycles in a bunch of ways. Everybody knew that a big show was coming up. So all the developers would be working for a year, maybe two years or three years in product development, but they would have a target. You know, NAB week is when we're going to be showing this off. And even companies like Apple, who famously withdrew from the show, use that show cycle to introduce new things. So at NAB, we would see a new rev of the software or some new major announcement. So um, if all of that goes away and everything becomes digital first, what will be the places that we all know that the industry is going to be looking in this category and, and you'll have more focus, more energy and more eyeballs 
on this area of the technological world as opposed to every other weekend. So I, I think there's going to be some version of it that'll keep going. But yeah, it's definitely changing. And, and I, I completely agree with the thing that uh, that making the press release announcement maybe a week before and then letting everybody gather to kick the tires and ask questions might be a, a, a really good way to approach this. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, what does the panel think about audience audio augmentation tools at live concerts like Mix Halo or Peaks? I don't know specifically what they do with that, but audience audio augmentation, it sounds a little bit like a good front of house mixing. Uh, maybe they're talking about something else and maybe that, but live concerts have always had this process of needing the energy of the live performance and trying to communicate that to the audience watching at home or on their, their pads or whatever. So um, if they're doing, if, if these products, which I am sadly not familiar with mix halo or PX, P-E-E-X, interesting. Um, I, I'm not familiar with them, but if they can manage to bring more of that live experience into it, maybe they'll find a market for it. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas has a question. Apart from office hours, which has the best show coverage? What is the best way to experience CES via a roving walk-around report? So everybody has their own way of doing it. I've been spending so much, I've spent so much of my life going to trade shows like NAB and CES and the rest of these um, that I have a personal strategy and this is just me. So other people will have a different way. But what I used to do is first and foremost, I would sit down with the show brochure. There's almost always a brochure and it gives you a map of the show floor. That is all digital now, but you can still find it online. And I would plot out a just circle in pen in my hotel room, the must sees. Then I would look at those and say, what are my routes through the convention to get to those? And I would specifically look for areas of small vendors that were on my way that I could divert to, because often the most interesting things I found in a show were not from the big announcements, but from little up and coming companies that had something that could solve a problem for me. So for me, it was that balance. I want to see the big things, but I very much want to find those little targets of opportunity booths along the way that could seriously solve a problem for me. So it, that was my balance every year I went to trade shows for two decades. David Paskin has thoughts. Well, I have more, more of a question than, than thoughts. I'm, I'm wondering, I've never been to CES. Is the audience changing for these trade shows? That is to say, before the pandemic and before all of us were thinking about digital first coverage or digital coverage of any sort for these events, the audience was the people who were showing up, who are on the ground. So are these are these shows thinking about a shift in audience? Is, is the new audience or a, a new segment of the audience now the folks who aren't showing up and are watching from home? Are, are it they was definitely starting to change. You know, at NAB traditionally, and that's just one of the bigger ones that I went to many years, it was a commercial show. You'd see people in suits and you wouldn't see the public as much because it started on Monday, went Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, and then it was over. Just this last year when they tried to uh, kind of reboot uh, NAB, they moved a, sh a part of it to Sunday. So they were obviously saying consumers, everybody is interested in this stuff now. Let's let's re readjust this formula to make it more consumer friendly or general attendee friendly rather than just industry insider. So I think that was happening. Uh, Liberty, your thoughts? 
I, I would say I'm looking at um, what Paul was saying, like he was specifically like saying the best online coverage. I haven't seen anyone this year yet. I know they just started. I've seen Engadget doing some reports. But for me, my the best virtual CES experience that I had was five years ago, four or five years ago, where they streamed on Twitter and they engaged, they had influencers that were hosting like each day, I believe it was like they had different influencers. So that way we got the behind the scenes from the influencers so you could like follow their feeds. And I think this kind of follows some things that Alex has mentioned in before of, you know, going deep into the personality in, and that's more TV show programming. But I, I see that as anyone who's going to excel in their content and coverage of CES is that you've got the comments coming in from the audience. You're pulling in, you've sprinkled like breadcrumbs of um, content in advance, and then you're engaging with them live while you're there. And then the planning part, as you said, Bill, you know, the brochure and putting like that plan of production together. So I think that um, to make a CES broadcast or live broadcast engaging it has to include some social elements social and interactive elements i think you're exactly spot on with that you know in, in terms of curation my path through nab or one of these shows would have been different than a friend of mine who was heavily influenced by audio or was interested in teleprompting or whatever so curators people who are hosts of digital first content who can bring you into the part of the show that is most interesting to you makes perfect sense to me as we move toward digital first. Uh, Sky Gleason? Historically, these conventions were were out of my reach. And so I would make friends with the, the vendors and or the resellers themselves. And consequently, they were more than happy to give me their in, input about their product and, and how it was gonna solve my problems. But yes, once I started attending, in ABs, it was the relationships and consequently not just with fellow editors, but with the vendors and the people that were supplying the equipment that I needed to make a living. Now, I also, to your, to the question, Paul, um, do how long do we think this could last? Well, there, there was a big show called Comdex at one time had a lot of people that would, would attend because they were all trying to understand computers as laptops and and things were evolving into personal computers became much more of a commodity. So I think as a commodity concept, um, Paul, you may be on the cutting edge there with South by Southwest. We maybe start seeing more vendors showing up for festivals because that's where people are gathered. And to Jesse's point earlier, if it, the clients, I mean, people are there to sell something and they want and they need people. So they're going to go where the people are. Courtney. As far as who has the best coverage, uh, sitting back in my easy chair, uh, thumbing through YouTube last night, you know, I find that uh, CNET has some pretty good coverage and Gadget does too. Uh, if you're looking across the YouTube channels, I kind of like uh, Lon Sybin. Uh, he has a YouTube channel that do deals with hardware and software, and uh, he's scouring the show. And I did see his roundup of the uh, the preview shows like Pepcom that they have uh, last night before the show opened today. And he does a very concise report. He edits it together very tightly. His personality doesn't get in the way of uh, getting information out. Uh, I'm talking to you, Brian Tong. And uh, it's, <laughs> it, uh, it, it's a good way to get a lot of information fairly fast. And he, he 
cuts all the chaff out and just goes for the facts and cuts from booth to booth to show you what he's found and what's important about it. And the prices, he always manages to get the prices out of people. So that's important. And when looking at new products. Hey, Courtney, I didn't catch that name. So uh, did you say Lawn? Uh, if someone uh, wanted to look it Lon up. Sybin. Lawn Sybin. Sybin. Is it C-Y-B-I-N or something like C -S -I -B -E -S -I -E -B -E -N, that? C-S-I-B-E-S-I-E-B-E-N, I think. Okay. Lon Sybin. He's got a YouTube channel. All right, fair enough. Nigel. Yeah, CES isn't one show, it's many shows. And so what I try and do is think about what the vertical I'm interested in. So I will go, for instance, I'm the home automation stuff is interesting. I'll go to CE Pro, which is the sort of home automation uh, trade press, and I'll start there. So so my advice is you've got to pick the right show because there are multiple different shows. I mean, I would always walk around the car a technology thing. I wasn't in that business, but I wanted to have my whole body shaken by the bit, the bass that I could hear from a mile away. But so go to the vertical for the particular industry you're interested in. Yeah, I think that resonates with me too. I spent a lot of years and somebody said, did you see that great thing in NABN? I went, no, I never got over there. I was, there was so much to see that without knowing where you're going, you'll miss a lot. Next question. From Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, asking, Hello, Oliver. Does Mimo Live work with the video pencil by Michael Forrest? Oliver. Oh, yes, it does. Uh, as I can just uh, demonstrate here. So I just downloaded it and uh, just draw on my face here, which is nice. And wow. uh, it's something I will certainly add to our uh, add-ons tools list which is very easy to set up. It sends out the video uh, using NDI. Um, so it sends out a um, transparent uh, alpha channeled video. So if you draw on the screen, uh, I can really just drop in a new layer in Mimo Live and just turn it on and it works. So it's a very cool thing. Excellent. Mimo Live compatible with Video Pencil. David Paskin. And Oliver, are you, uh, a, does Mimo Live send NDI, an NDI, the program out to the iPad via NDI so that you can see what you're drawing on? You can do that. Yes. Yes, right. you can do that. Nice. All right. This is great to have the developer here so we get absolute answers. Next question. Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Can you shade and fully control a Blackmagic Ursa or the Broadcast G2 on the ATEM switchers? If not, can that be done by the higher-end 4K TV studio? And this is another one where I'm unfortunately, uh, I, I'm trying to remember what Alex has said about those, because I think he works with both of those pieces of technologies. But um, I, I, if I tried to give you a, any kind of semblance of an answer, I would probably get it totally wrong. So sorry, we're going to miss on this one. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, will we ever see direct SRT in and out support in MIMO Live without the use of FFmpeg? Let me think. Who could answer that in the panel? Oh, Oliver. It's you know it's my my destiny to answer those questions I guess um, <laughs> uh, we'll never say never you know so I I don't know um, we we I hope we get around doing it sometime um, it certainly is an interesting thing it's I I, th I think it's it's very complicated setup and f from my point of view it's a little overrated um, in form you know in 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 terms of what SRT can do, a lot of people are very excited about it. Um, I'm I'm not so excited about it. So um, yeah, but uh, it's we get some requests to that effect, and uh, 
Um, we can do inputs through FFmpeg, which I think works quite well. Um, output is not yet implemented with FFmpeg, but we'll do that um, as well. So because FFmpeg just offers a lot of um, opportunities uh, for output and so um yeah that's 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 gonna happen i don't know if we do native i've looked at the um the sat sdk a couple of times it doesn't seem to be very straightforward to be implemented not as as straightforward as uh, for example ndi or or black magic sdk and so that always means a lot of work and um yeah you know um we already have a lot of ideas we have to uh uh a lot um you know the resources to the things that that makes a lot of sense srt is on the list but i can't make any promises all right that's a fair answer next question nigel to sound austin texas asking i received emails today about a class action settlement around apple butterfly keyboards have you ever responded to one of these and do you think it's worth the effort liberty I have from a big box retailer and I got all of $7.13. <laughs> I resemble that remark. Sky. I was, yes, involved with a class action suit of some kind. And yes, I think I was a checkbox on some legal assistance to-do list. And so did I get any money back? I don't know, but I, I'm sure they spent a lot more in mail and postage than they than I would have ever received had I followed through. Courtney. Unless you're one of the original claimants on the suit, uh, class action suits uh, that you participate in are never going to return you anything more than maybe a coupon for $10 off on the next product you buy, you know, from them, from wh whoever created the problem. Nigel. Uh, thank you for the advice. Uh, sadly, I've received four of these emails, which tells you how much money I've spent on Apple butterfly keyboards in the last few years. Yeah, I think the people who really make money out of that tend to be the law firms that bring the class action suit, not usually the people in the class, but that, that's just me. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, with the growth of open consumer-centric home automation standards like Matter, what places will the old line vendors like Crestron and Savant take in the residential technology industry? There's the name I was looking for. Nigel, talk to us about what you see. I'm sorry, I missed that one. Uh, so the answer is uh, the bottom of the market will continue to consumerize. The top of the market will still stay where it is. Uh, if you're doing, we did a wider house the other day with 100, not last couple of years ago, 196 shades and 90 televisions. You're not going to operate that on matter. You're going to need something more uh, fulfilling. So large homes are still going to use these things. Small homes, more and more people do it themselves. 196 automated shades. That's a lot of window. Cool. Uh, next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas asking, at CES, TVs are going wireless. Even a 97-inch LG and some are battery powered. See my note in chat from CNET. How will these get used and is there a whole new market category? David Paskin. I don't get it. I, I, this is not a portable consumer <laughs> device that I need to not have plugged in. I, I just don't get it. Remember when you'd see a teenager walking down the street with a wagon with a gigantic boom box on it? Maybe we're coming into the era where their little iPod will be running a 60-inch TV on a cart behind them. Who knows? Uh, Sky. Well, I've started noticing since we're no longer connected by a cable, 
I think uh, these portable monitors can be put in in venues and places around office buildings, but they're not just TVs anymore. They're monitors. So just think of where you would want digital signage. So I could imagine this being used for other things than just entertainment. Uh, Sky Gleason. Oh, that was Sky. I'm sorry. Uh, Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I know. (laughs) The main application, I think the main application for these is for RVs and for, uh, you know, pool TVs, things that you have outside uh, that is not close, not easy to get wires to. Now, the battery power, maybe 12-volt powered, so you could power it off an RV power system or 12-volt battery uh, might be be a good idea. Um, Because I see a lot of RVs in in the film industry, uh, you know, a lot of the RVs, the the, uh, trucks, the catering trucks have... uh, 55 inch TVs on the outside to entertain people to put their digital signage up. So, uh, 12 volt systems are fairly common, but, uh, battery powered. I don't see it. Oliver. Yeah. I think, I think removing wires is a good thing. Um, so if you, if you're looking for a solution to put something up temporarily for like, maybe like an event or something, you just roll in the thing with the battery and you can just, uh, cast to it so um i'm i'm fairly amazed at how low latency something like the apple tv is when you do uh, airplay to it um and 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 i think you know i i'm a big fan of ndi because it removes wires and and so yeah uh, i can i can see uses for that i don't think i would put something like that in my living room and then have to worry about recharging it anytime or every time um and I, I think if I have a stationary monitor somewhere and there's all the electronics in it for making it, you know, wireless like the battery, that's just additional cost. And and the battery is just gonna die over the years because I don't if I don't use it, then um, I I don't need to have it. But um, I, I definitely see uh, use cases for um, you know uh, completely wireless displays. Um, and I would agree. Um, that you have to think about this not in terms of a TV set, but of a monitor where you can just, you know, display anything you want. Jesse Kessler. I didn't think I wanted 20-minute batteries in my studio lights until I had studio lights with 20-minute batteries, and we started doing all of our pre-lighting on battery. Then we would uh, plug it into wall power, so we didn't have to deal with any cables when we're doing the the early stages of lighting. And then we can nudge it uh, once we're plugged into the wall after the 20 minutes of pre-lighting. I can see plenty of uses for small uh, monitors, just like this in uh, video production, where you want the first half hour very loose and mobile, and then once you're kind of settled in, then you plug everything in and uh, and kind of settle down a bit. I wonder from since I'm not able to go to CES this year, I'm wondering about the security of all these wireless TVs. Is it possible for somebody to either hack into it or uh, vampire off your signal if you're in an apartment complex or something like that and uh, grab your purchase of some movie? Hmm, interesting. Something to look into. I haven't really paid much attention to wireless TV yet, so something for the future. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael asking, the conventional wisdom is is that a second monitor is essential streaming equipment. With large-size ultra-wide monitors available today, is that still true? I know some macOS applications do not like being window capture, though. David Paskin will start us off. I've worked with a couple people who have these ultra-wide monitors, and I've only had problems with them. I'm personally, I'm a fan of having 
lots of little monitors. I, I, and that way I can put everything full screen, each on its own little monitor. I'm pretty sure that there are ways to segment monitors, the, these ultrawide monitors that I'm just not smart enough to figure out yet. But my limited experience in working with folks who have them is that they just, they're really challenging to, to work with. Mitchell Hill. I agree with uh, what David has to say. Also, if you're using a teleprompter and a camera, FX3, uh, Sony in, in my case, um, you need a place to put it in the middle and until they make an ultra-wide monitor with an FX3, and I'm not going to go there. Oliver? Um, I would, I, I, I have a, an ultra-wide monitor and I simply love it, but I would still say that um, a second monitor is, um, is, is, uh, is preferred um, because it just uh, gives you a defined area where you don't accidentally show stuff that you don't want to show. And uh, window capture is on the Mac is not a very good idea. Uh, Apple has updated the API a little bit, so it might be better if we use the new API. But uh, screen capture is much more reliable and uh, and and doesn't put that much load on the on the machine i even go so far as if as to say if you are doing a presentation so if you run something like powerpoint then you should actually have a second computer not just a second monitor to run uh, your powerpoint presentation on because um, if you run it full screen with you know the speaker view, um, uh, it 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 turns all the monitors black so you don't even have you know, you don't see the the speaker panel in Zoom anymore, and things like that. Um, so, so running it on a second computer is um, offloading all the loads. You, you get smooth animations, you get smooth uh, video playback, um, and um, uh, and you can basically use it the same way as you would um, if you perform on a stage. So there's a lot of advantages um, using a, a dedicated presentation computer and a, a separate streaming computer, which is what I recommend for professional setups. Jesse. Uh, just to echo what's been said, it, for me, it's more about information delineation than it is pixel count. So multiple monitors is usually better than one giant monitor. Yeah, what Oliver said uh, resonated with me when I used to do presentations that had to work. I would always bring two computers and the content would run off of one and the presentation would run off the other. And uh, boy, in this era with inexpensive ATEM switches and like that, it's really easy to be able to pop back and forth between two sources. Let's move on to the next question. And by the way, um, we're going to probably be starting a little bit early on our brainstorm. Uh, we've got a couple more questions, but not many. So uh, if we need to, that's what we'll do. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas, asking, Sony announced Ophelia at CES, a new car with 45 cameras and sensors with movies, games, and a lot of other stuff, including Unreal Engine for social mobility. It's available in 25. Is this a game changer? Nigel, start us off. No. Uh, so listen, let's be honest about electric cars. It's, it's very simple. If you travel less than 50, 100 miles a day, doesn't matter which one you buy, they're fine. Pick the one with the best go faster stripes you like. If you travel much more than that, in the US at least, the only question that matters is, is it a Tesla? Because you need access to the Tesla supercharger network. None of the other uh, charging networks work. What the game changer in electric cars will be when they consistently do 500 miles on a charge. And then I think stuff will change. But really, uh, where things are, they can make them look as pretty as they want. But if you can't charge them, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, Mitchell. 
Yeah, Ibo, the Sony robot dog, needs a car to ride in, so I think it would be a good investment. Uh, John Preto. I don't, I don't Ophelia, Sony. This is what I thought about their presentation last night. Ooh, ouch. We got a verbal, uh, or an audio response. Courtney. Yeah, I, I watched the presentation and they, it's, it's in conjunction with Honda, who's building the car. And, uh, Sony is taking their PlayStation, you know, electronics and, and processors and putting them in the car. I don't think gamifying driving is a good idea. Uh, you know, because most of the driving programs that are out there as games, you know, have you crashing into stuff and robbing people and driving <laughs> like a maniac. So I don't think 55 cameras, you know, it may be the uh, dream for the insurance adjusters and the insurance companies out there. If it's recording all 55 of these cameras, when you're cutting somebody off in the freeway and creating its 25 car pileup. But other than that, I don't really see the utility other than the safety aspect. Sky. As a Leaf owner, I'm at the Nissan dealership and a woman is very excited about her brand new Nissan Leaf and having traded in a Tesla because she says she's old school enough that she didn't want to be touching a screen to turn her lights on and off and her windshield wipers up and down. She, need, she needed more tactile buttons. So the gamification of something for somebody in the automation may not be quite there yet, but that was an interesting response to the latest technology and the, and people needing transportation. Tom Ferguson. Oh my, is uh, Sony going to find a way to institute a subscription service to my car? <laughs> Impossible. I'm wondering, you know, I, it, cars seem to be in flux now. I, I mentioned the other day on the show that I was, uh, Carmen Vines effect, uh, and, um, Guy Cochran and I had uh, lunch in Oceanside a couple of days ago, and he brought his hydrogen-powered car. And uh, it was really interesting to be in something that was completely different in a, a category that is not electric, but is still trying to figure out how to kind of revamp the whole driving thing. Now, this isn't self-driving. This is standard uh, a car that you drive and the rest of that. I'm wondering with all those cameras, what's the point? And if it's not road awareness leading us towards self-driving. I'm actually now getting a little bit more technology uh, interested in the alternate technologies of power rather than just um, the AI aspects of it. But we'll see. It seems like there's just a lot of development going on in the auto space. And it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out over the next few years. Uh, Nigel, do you have a last thought? Yeah, uh, the cameras is for self-driving and for awareness of the vehicle. I, I did want to point out that the games are not while you drive, they are while you parked and while you are stuck at your charger charging, you can turn your machine into a games machine. I can watch Hulu, I can watch YouTube, I can watch uh, Netflix on it. But when you do that, it turns off the driving capability. Yeah, so that was the thing I was interested in with the hydrogen because it's more like the fill up at the tank. It doesn't take very long to fill it up so you avoid that. I have to sit here for a half an hour or 45 minutes, which is an issue. issue. So I can, I, I guess I can see the gamification of the car in terms of giving you something to do during that. Uh, interesting. Let's move on. Next question. Douglas Carmichael has a question. With the prevalence of large-size ultra-wide computer monitors, would the use of a TV as a desktop monitor not be advised today? Oliver, what are your thoughts? I would generally not advise using a TV set um, uh, as a monitor because they do all kinds of processing on the video signal and you might want to have a monitor um, that 
is um, specific for yeah, just showing um, what the computer wants you to wants wants to show to you. Um, especially if you do video work, um, you don't want the monitor to color correct um, your Final Cut Pro um, uh, video material or you know. Uh, uh, AI interpolate from 24 frames to 120 or whatever you have um, makes it look uh, nice if you watch a 4K um, Netflix show uh, which is heavily compressed and so they um, do some magic to it to remove compression artifacts and stuff but if you uh, you know uh, work on the material you don't want this stuff uh, so get a good um, dedicated uh, a monitor dedicated to video work um, or um, you know if, if you if you're doing office if, if you I'm if you use it for gaming and you're probably okay um, because um, you know the display is just fine for that but not for um, working uh, workstation you know Courtney if you're not doing color grading, you know, a 4K TV can be found for pretty cheap. And most of them do have the ability to turn off all, have a game mode, what's called game mode, where it turns off all the processing. So if you're worried about latency or or the effect of interpolation on your uh, video that you're playing back to test. But it, it actually is a good thing if you're... Uh, if you're editing video to have at least one of the monitors to be a TV monitor so you can see what it's going to look like on a consumer panel. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, it's like having the small monitors, um, near field monitors in a mixing stage. So that you hear what it's going to sound like when it comes out of a transistor radio, you know. Uh, so I, I think there's applications and it's much cheaper, you know, typical, a 43 inch computer monitor is going to cost twice what a 43 inch TV does simply because the commoditization of the panels sold throughout a larger market makes the TV priced a lot smaller, a lot lower. Liberty. And just as a, another side to thinking of like making sure that you have a color accurate, um, if you're doing video, a color accurate monitor, because I actually ran into, and actually with someone on office hours, I asked a question like almost two years ago about a monitor and I had to pick up and do some color grading um, for a project. And the original monitor I was looking at it on when I looked on the color graded one, which is bigger that the color was off. So just putting that as an example of what you want to be mindful of, of like, yes, if you get a larger television screen, that's fine, but just the color accuracy, um, depending on what you're using it for. So just as an FYI. Those things all resonate with me, as does the fact that I, one of the things I've been looking for a new TV, because I'm getting, I have one in my living room that's about to be um, too old. And I thought, I just want really a monitor. I don't want all the fancy stuff. Boy, finding a TV these days without Netflix and, and Hulu and 35 other built-in processors in the computer in the background. And I, I've been reading some stuff. And, you know, when, those, when you're watching those TVs, it's possible the TV is also watching you in terms of tracking all the places that you go online and the rest of that. And I'm a little leery of that. So trying to find something that is more monitor and less TV for a household situation is a goal that I have. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to achieve that goal because I understand that some of those uh, auxiliary uses actually support the TV manufacturers with revenue streams. And that's part of what keeps some classes of TVs so surprisingly cheap 
for the size of them. So it's just something I'm thinking about as I'm back in the market again. Courtney, you had another thought? Uh, yeah. If you are using a TV as strictly as a computer monitor, don't connect it to the internet. Don't set up the Wi-Fi. Don't plug an ethernet cable into it and you won't have any problem with it spying on you or using its little applications to slow things down or doing automatic updates, any of that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's weird, but it's weird that you have to pay. Well, I guess you're not paying it. I guess it's subsidizing it. It's just, it's, it's buying a TVs is, is more complex than it seemingly used to be for me as since I'm out in the market. Next question. Next one in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Will Nick Justician be the first to get an Alfila from Sony and Honda so he can go on the road with Unreal Engine? He'd be a good choice, I would think. Nick, our dear friend who is at Drexel University and is one of the research folks who is paying attention to Unreal Engine at a very deep level. Uh, well, the next time he's back on the show, somebody definitely put a put a question in there and see if there's any connection between what's happening with Unreal Development and what's just happened with the Sony Honda initiative. Next question. Next one in from Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, my workstation has grown a bit out of control over the past three years, and the key factor keeping me from rebuilding it is cable management. What tricks and tools do you recommend to get this mess under control? It is a mess, and it's one of the most complicated subjects we deal with here because computer cabling is not getting smarter. We think all this Wi-Fi stuff will make it easy. There's still a lot of cables off the back of everything I own. Oliver, what are your thoughts? Well, just uh, do it. I mean, uh, that's usually my strategy is just uh, pluck apart everything uh, every now and then and then rewire it. And uh, then I uh, uh, need a cable and then I grab that cable out of the, the thing and it gets disorganized again. So it's just a periodic, you know, uh, thing to clean up and um and and it's a it, it's it's a uh, psychological you know it it frees up a lot of uh of feelings uh, just do it <laughs> so. mitchell uh chad it's time for spring cleaning you got to pull all this stuff out there i'll tell you what i use and it works great it's a uh, basket uh a wire basket with uh, holes in it like uh, you would call a, a laundry basket maybe uh that's made specifically to hang under your desk on the rear edge and you can just lay cables in there and have them in and out at any point um i find that a very useful uh organizing tool especially on your monitors courtney and once you lay out your uh, equipment with whatever cables you have, then go out and and measure how long the cable could be if it just went from point A to point B and buy cables that are the right length. And that way it gets rid of all that excess cable that you don't know what to do with and looped up behind everything and becoming a spaghetti mess. So, uh, Sky Gleason. Yeah, it sounds like you're trying to fly the airplane and build it at the same time and also service your clients. So that's that's a challenge. So you might need to build a second airplane first, like a, a temporary workstation so that you can completely deconstruct your main location. And again, in working inside of uh, big locations, I've seen uh, the cable channels. Again, they're all very intentional about they know they're going to pull more cable. They're going to take those some cables out. So they're putting flexibility in intentionally. And also, uh, again, my challenge for me is I always shove my desk up against the wall and then I'm crawling underneath the desk. So if there's a way to pull your, your cabling back or your desk away from the wall and give yourself that inevitability, you are going to need to get back there at some point. So think for the future, future proofing. 
Yeah, I'm going to plus one on that. I had one of my computer desks in the middle of the room, and it was glorious to be able to just go to the back of it anytime I wanted to. Uh, also, there are, some of the higher-end computer furniture have what are called cable troughs built into the actual desk. If you can get a hold of one, and then either on the new and used market, they are very much uh, what Mitch was talking about. But these are metal troughs, not wire baskets, and they have multiple cutouts, so you can get cables in and out of them. Uh, it just gets to be a difficulty. You know, I remember that there were years when I used zip ties, and then I just realized that every time I put a zip tie on anything, I would cut it off within two weeks because I had forgotten to add something or take something out, and it became a mess. So I moved to doing all Velcro wraps and things that are changeable because change is inevitable in the systems that we work with. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, Bill, that was interesting that you said that two computers can be useful for some presentation use cases for music audio workflows with some streaming. Would two Mac minis be better than one studio? Well, I was talking mostly about on the road. That's where I found it the most useful. If you are going to be traveling, uh, and it's exactly what Oliver was talking about earlier. If you have a single computer trying to, to perform two functions, which is play out for the audience and running your presentation through Keynote or something else, for me, it was always, even with as good as things like Keynote are at, at giving you a preview of the slide that's coming next, to know that my when I hit a button on the ATEM or whatever mixer or switch I was using in the old days, this signal that's on this computer, when I hit this, it will go to the audience screen. No questions, nothing to configure, nothing to crash. I found really helpful. I think it's a little different in your home system. And uh, some of those things like the built-in keynote function of program and preview being on the software can work just fine. But that's my thoughts. Jesse Kester and Oliver will uh, give us their ideas. Jesse? As with most things, it really depends on what you're going to be doing with it. If you're going to be producing music, I would go with the BVS most robust computer, single unit computer that you can get. Uh, but if you're getting into streaming and you do want to do graphics, uh, I would seriously consider having a computer dedicated for the graphics and feeding that into an ATEM. And the reality is that when we're servicing a client, um, if we are planning on two computers, one for streaming broadcast and one for playing graphics, we bring four computers. <laughs> Double up. Safety is always best. Oliver, your last thought here. Yeah, the specific use case that uh, Douglas mentions, uh, I, I would I would recommend. I would say that uh, yes, two Mac Minis is better than one Mac Studio um, because um, the audio um, the audio apps really you want to you don't want them to run on the same machine as anything else um and uh you know uh, if you do stream your work then you might want to separate those things um and uh the the mac minis uh, are certainly very powerful and two of them are maybe on par with uh, Mac Studio, depends on what Mac Studio you use, but having two separate computers doing their stuff is always um, a little better than, you know, um, if, if, you, if you don't have to interact with uh, both things to have to interact with each other. If it's separate tasks, then uh, two computers may be preferable. 
All right. We've made it to the top of the hour here. In fact, we're a couple of minutes over. Sorry about that. Um, and now we're going to be talking about brainstorming. All this week, we have been talking here at Office Hours about brainstorming for the shows coming up in the quarter. And by the way, I've gotten the note that I'm a little out of sync, and I apologize for that, but it's just something that happens, I think, during these rainstorms around here. Anyway, um, as to the brainstorming videos, what we do not want to do here is just ask general questions about topics. We want to really get your ideas about what you'd like to see us cover here at Office Hours over the first quarter. And today, since Thursday is traditionally kind of our video multimedia, uh, we deal with uh, a lot of things having to do with content production. Uh, we talk about hardware, software, even on-set people skills. So this is a pretty broad surrounding video production uh, area. And so your ideas about places to uh, things to explore there. So if uh, any of the panelists, we're going to open up for panelists first, if uh, Mitch has already raised his hand, but if anybody else on the panel wants to toss in their ideas about some areas to explore in office hours shows coming up in the first quarter, this is the time when you can put in your input. So Mitch, you want to start us off? Love to bring Charles in to do color grading and developing LUTs because all of us want to look as good as Liberty's video does right now. Charles is fabulous. And I, having hosted him a couple of times in the video hour, yes, I'll get a definite plus there. I, we'll make sure to reach out to him. And he's got a very busy schedule, so I don't want to uh, impede with that. But if anytime we can get him, it's great to have him here. I know he's already very, very popular. Liberty, your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a great opportunity because... Um, uh, early on, like, as you mentioned, this being like the content day. So I think this is a great opportunity to like the video aspect, the technical side. I see some of the questions that are coming in, which are fantastic around roles and people. So really flushing that out more um, terminology, um, hopefully even getting in some guests that work on, you know, work on certain shows or even a lot more of the behind the scenes people that make this part of the industry really work. I think that would seeing that kind, those kind of shows and that those kind of interviews would be um, great, especially for people who are making the transition into this industry. Um, yeah, those are my Absolutely. You know, it, it, one of the hardest things about this industry has traditionally been just learning about it. It was really hard to get on sets. It was really hard to meet somebody who was a gaffer or who was an A1 or any of the roles on set that have been classically defined. And how do you know that you might want to do that if you can't even talk to somebody who's ever done it? So, yeah, plus money and, and all that. And to add to that, you make a really great point because sets are also, they range. So you could have a set that has like only a handful of people. So how do you scale? And, and for people who are looking for those kind of jobs, to your point right there, what's the path? Because it is a very who you know type of space. So um, just adding that cherry on top. Yeah, Alex has always done an excellent job of talking about the the etiquette of on set. So if you, even if you have the skills and get an opportunity, knowing those soft back end skills of how to fit into a crew and um, be noticed for the right things rather than the wrong things, we do, a, I think, a, a good job of that when we talk about these. And I'm sure people want to hear more. Sky, your thoughts. What I'm appreciating about this week is that we're looking at these techniques and each of these disciplines of of audio video production and we're recognizing that not all video is created the same and consequently we're we're actually looking at the horses for courses comment about what tool is right for what job and consequently as a 
I've learned early on was, you know, video is a team sport. And then consequently, who are the humans that are going to the wet? What's the wetware that you need to get and manage those, those tools. So that's what I'm appreciating about this week. And that we're looking at not just a, it, it, like you said, it used to be very expensive. The equipment was very uh, limited and your access consequently was also very limited. Now, everybody with an iPhone, everybody with a YouTube channel is, is now a producer, director, writer, you know, the Scorsese and the, the, the manufacturers want you to believe that because they want to keep selling you more service or product. So that's where I appreciate this week is helping us delineate and define uh, inside the, the video category. What is the best tool for the job? Courtney, your thoughts. I think a good second hour on post-production with a kind of a shootout between uh, the major four uh, players in this field, you know, uh, Adobe, Apple, um, Avid, and um, Blackmagic uh, with Resolve uh, to see how they've evolved, who's kept up with technology, who's leading edge, bleeding edge, um, which ones are the best for which applications for prosumer, consumer, professional, you know, each of those categories. It'd be interesting to have a representative who cuts daily on each one of those platforms to offer, you know, their opinions. All right, Jesse. I know the program's most natural state is discussing live uh, production, streaming productions, things like that. But I wonder if there is more room for uh, discussions on uh, single camera narrative filmmaking, both feature and television, things like documentary filmmaking, something a, li a little more, um, a, a little more, <laughs> I don't want to say Hollywood, but you know what I mean when I'm saying that. I do. And there, there is a difference. And, you know, th this whole thing is flipped upside down. In my career, over the course of the time, you couldn't get a hold of a serious camera unless you were involved in a pretty big production. Flash forward 20 years and everybody has a 4K camera in their back pocket. Now, obviously, that and a Mitchell BMC, which is the very first film camera I worked with, or a uh, really high-level D600 Sony or something like that, those were really hard to get a hold of. I mean, you're talking 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dollars back at a time when that was serious. Uh, you know, most people made 20, 30, 40,000 dollars a year back in those days, the, you know, a standard job. So it represented a huge reach to even play, and that is all flipped around. And so dealing with, yeah, I think that a lot of topics around that area of what's the right path now if you want to learn to do this stuff and advance your career. What are the new gotchas? Mitch, you had some thoughts? Yeah, my business partner also works at a big rental house in Philadelphia. And he has his hands on every camera that's out there. Uh, Aries, uh, Sony, Venices, everything. And he's a master of lenses. I'd love to talk to him uh, for a second hour about what, you know, what to look for when you're renting, uh, things that you should do when you're returning them. Uh, all of that, there's such a, a rich... Um, uh, warehouse of uh, information that's happening there because he's got firsthand knowledge of it. Yeah, I don't think any of us in the early era who came up and and ended up with our old, our own operations didn't make friends with our local rental house or two, and they were a deeply important partner in getting us to the next level because that was the way you got it, got your hands on something that was way unaffordable for you in your regular work. Uh, Tom Ferguson. I was thinking a second hour on special effects. 
They used to be heavily optical in the film days, but with digital, we've moved into the editing realm. Love to learn more. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. There are, you know, everybody has plugins now, and some of those plugins uh, make easier things that took large crews of optical uh, processing, processing people and machines in the old days. Now you can click on something and get a swarm of particles to emit from the end of a blaster in your home movie. And the distance between what they used to be able to do at Lucasfilm and what you can do on your desktop, I mean, it's not the same, certainly, but it's way closer. Uh, Mitch? Yeah, I could do a whole uh, second hour on Mocha Pro, which is a great rotoscoping uh, tracking uh, software uh, that you can use in After Effects and Resolve and other programs. It's great. Good. Let's put it on the vote list. And uh, and that's one of the things we're trying to do here. We're trying to capture all these ideas. And uh, particularly from you, who uh, all of you who are producers who are watching today. So let's dive into the list. Mitch, who have we got? First one in from Tom Ferguson in Phoenix, Arizona. And right here on our panel, bring back Adam Tao and have a mix effect lab. And Mitch. Adam's the reason I'm here. He was the one that got me to join Office Hours, so I have a special affinity to this. But I have his product, and to be honest with you, I think I only use a tiny portion of everything that's available because Mix Effect is sort of a Swiss Army knife for your uh, your ATEM. And I'd sure like to know the things that I'm not doing that I could be doing uh, that would be very interesting. Adam knows it inside and out, obviously. Uh, Tom Ferguson. Well, that's just it. The other night on After Hours, we were talking about a chroma key in a particular area, and they needed to do a garbage mask. And how do you do this on uh, Mix Effect? Yeah, it would be great to have him back. We all love Adam. So anytime he has time and wants to come back, uh, I would hope we can schedule him as quickly as possible. Uh, next question. Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach, asking OBS. I'm thinking a primer similar to Liberty White's demo and Q&A for Canva would also be a great lab to go from beginner to advanced user. Liberty has some thoughts, Liberty. Yes. What I like about this question so much is that even though um, many of us work very in a professional setting and sometimes OBS is not something that we want to use because it's failed on us. There are so many people who use OBS. So I think that there's an opportunity to, to learn something, learn some hacks. There could be some specific use cases around it. Like, so totally unpacking it from the novice and don't know anything about OBS to the uh, the hacks to the advance. Um, Dan Flores has been on this show before, a good friend, and he uses OBS and does does magic with it. And I'm just like, how? How, Dan? So I think there's definitely some opportunities for that. Okay. Vote in there. Next question. Next question from Sky Gleason in Seattle, Washington. And here serving on our panel today. Can we have guests in to discuss different editorial styles, short form, long form, action, comedy, drama? Sky, expand. Well, again, I, I come from Los Angeles where the, the tool is creating the, the, the product and the product is story and you sell the story to sell other, other products. Now I moved to Seattle and the, the tool is now selling the software, the airplane, the coffee beans, whatever. So I guess what I discovered though, is to, to Jesse's point, there's story and narrative in doing both of those sales sale of a product or an idea or a thought. And so that's where I'd be very interested in, uh, learning from others that are using story to to get an idea across 
and with things like chat GPT, we're seeing some pressure on story and writing and AI and it, it'll be interesting, I think, to explore where that goes, and maybe our Thursdays will be a good source for that. Courtney, you have thoughts? Yeah, that was my thought, uh, Bill, is the Text, AI sorry. application to uh, yeah. to the editing process. Because once you teach the AI, you know, what is a two-shot, what is a single, what is an over-the-shoulder, what is a cowboy, what is a wide shot, et cetera, it can now, uh, you can now just describe the shots. And a lot of times, uh, writers, when they write screenplays, will incorporate the size of the shot or the close, you know, what the camera sees in the description, in the scene description. So it'd be very possible to have ChatGPT or some other AI actually read the scene description, read the original script, and generate a cut version that complies with the uh, original author's ideas. Be interesting to do that as an experiment and then see how editors or people who write for a living, what they point out in terms of successes or failures and how the AI approach the thought. All interesting things. Liberty, you had another thought? Oops, you're muted. Yeah, I realized that after. Sorry. Um, I was wondering if along this video conversation, if like the narratives for like casters and esports or how the the streaming side of that video, just thinking of like many of them make content around make content on YouTube. So if there's because there's a there's an art to that as well. So just throwing that out there is like is is does that fall in line as well? I think it absolutely does, and it's really fascinating to me. You know, nobody who is a skilled, trained writer would ever have written Yoda's dialogue. Somebody had to come up with this idiom of it's flipped, it's different, but it's charming, and it is linked to one of the wisest characters in the canon of that show and yet technically it's not right at least to our ears will an ai ever get to the point of being able to create that kind of tension or is it always going to go back and follow the rules and is that good or bad these are interesting questions sky well and maybe writers are going to be fitting into this category as well because i remember listening to james cameron talk about he as a writer had to keep himself from being technically technically uh he needed he needed to be technically inept because he wanted his imagination to flow how it was going to be imaged and created he didn't want to have to be constrained by that in his imagination so that means we got lots of very interesting unique imagery from him because his imagination wasn't limited to the technology so maybe we need to bring writers into this category yeah, when do, when does the AI heuristics, whatever the programmer put in there, when does it constrain rather than advance, or does it do both? Uh, interesting. Next uh, next suggestion here. Suggestion from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. HDR WCG streaming. I would love a deeper dive on this topic. I guess so would I, because I'm not sure what the WCG means about it. it must be a part of HDR, uh, and I am ignorant of that. So yes, I need to be. I need to be informed. I need to have my ignorance suppressed. And Office Hours is one of the great ignorance suppressors that I've ever run into. So uh, hopefully we can get that on the list, and somebody will be interested in it. Next question. Uh, next Tony, suggestion. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia. Here, is there a chance for a Mimo Live Ecam VMix conversation on where these products are in 2023? 
somebody should be able to help us who is lurking on the panel here about uh, some of the things about Mimo Live. Uh, Oliver, do you want to weigh in on this or do you want to just let it slide by? <laughs> no, I, I'm 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 happy to uh, come on the show uh, every now and then and talk about uh, new stuff. Um, uh, I I'm also planning to do a uh, a lab for the after hours. Um, Excellent. This year. Uh, but uh, I I need a, a co-conspirator um, for this because. Um, I'm I'm not very good at teaching, so I need someone who's who's able to uh, to teach uh, this stuff. And so, yeah, if if someone wants to to do that, uh, just uh, let me know. I smell opportunity, Liberty. You have thought? Whoops, you're muted. I'm sorry. That's what happens when I'm a panelist today and my mute having to turn it on and off. Um, there was a challenge show on oh, now. I want to say that was the in 2021 where it was putting up StreamYard against Restream. So I think some of those types of things um, could be interesting to just see picking a specific aspect of the technology and seeing how they compare and having people who use them completely and, you know, in completely different ways. I'm David Paskin is a ECAM person and, you know, how that and maybe some of his future use cases for it. So, yes, uh, we've done things like that in a different way before. So it could be great to bring something like that back. Oliver, your thoughts? Yeah, I love those challenges. So if you know, if have if you have challenges for me, uh, then just uh, throw them my way. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for that. Let's go to the next question. John Filer from Greenfield, Massachusetts. I think regular business meetings with less than ten people could be a great topic. Most people seem to lose interest if it's too complicated or technical. Is anyone interested in small conversations rather than productions? Jesse Kessler. I think this is the most important lift of 2023 is improving the quality of smaller online meetings. I think there's a lot of resonance for that, Liberty. You were nodding. Yes. And I turned my mute off this time. Um, and then I, when I saw that question, I also thought of, well, there are some higher like start, not startup, sorry, investor meetings and things like that, where they're not necessarily large. They are typically anywhere, maybe under 30, 20, even 10 people in the room. And that there's an opportunity there to to help people who do that kind of um, create that kind of content. And I think that, yeah, there's a big opportunity there. Sky. Well, uh, what's, what's the phrase? The tide rises and we all get to go up with it. So the, the, the thing I'm in keeping with the theme here, we're, we're trying to brainstorm for the future. I think this feels like one of the lab opportunities that we're talking about. And so in, in, with regards to video, Maybe there are labs or after hours sessions with specific people in specific categories. Courtney. Yeah, uh, second hour on the uh, best use of Zoom or Teams or uh, Cisco, any of the uh, streaming collaboration platforms that are out there uh, and which one is best and which one, you know, how to work with the tools within each of those applications without getting into too much hardware that interfaces to it, like uh, 
like we are doing here with switchers and backend and people doing remote mixing and so on, just using the tools that are in available to everybody who appears on these uh, um, collaboration pr- platforms. Jesse? And a, a specific hour that we could do on that topic is um, how to parlay the compliment that I'm assuming a lot of us get when we enter into a Zoom meeting into a nudge that everybody else move in that direction because I haven't figured out how to do that without sounding condescending and insulting. So I think there's there's always every meeting I jump into, there's this wonderful opportunity to help people improve their setup. And uh, if we could if we could nail that dismount every time. I think I think we'd see a lot of improvement. Yeah, we've been talking about that here for, for since the show has been alive. Uh, the process of encouraging people to take this medium, uh, online, web-based, one-to-many or, or group programming, and elevate the whole thing so that it becomes a more acceptable form of public discourse. We've all been working on that for a long time, and I think everybody resonates with that. Uh, Liberty, your thought? Something that came out of Monday session and and in after hours was the idea too of making sure can it catering to the international audience. I wonder with this topic, are there some nuances or cultural aspects for smaller meetings or as Courtney shared, um, some tools that we might not typically uh, speak about the other collaboration software that it might be more so used on the other side of the world. So just wondering if there are the opportunities for us to even dive into that part of it as well. That's an excellent point. I think we, uh, most of us uh, who are here come from the NTSC world and we forget that PAL and CCAM exists out in the world. There are a lot of people who do not use the same systems we do. Some of them work the same, but when we're talking about chasing 30 frames a second, that is not talking to people who live in areas where they don't deal with that. So yeah, I think I, I, I try to keep myself aware of uh, every time I give out a price, I just try to make sure I'm specific about it. it's in US dollars because I realize that not everybody works in that. And the more we can do to help people understand the global nature of our communication system, which is this show and the global nature of our audience, the better we serve our audience. So that's a good, that's a very good point to bring up. Let's go to the next suggestion. Suggestion from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. How to build an HDR-SDR pipeline and what to consider in building it. Yeah, that gets increasingly important, I think, as we go on, because, boy, the development of HDR and SDR and the devices, including phones and things like that, that can work in those different spaces is certainly a continuing part of our industry, Sky. I'm just putting my hand up for the ubiquitous they that it is taking that and you know, our secretary that's taking notes, Josh. But I, I second this, and I think uh, Jonas would be a uh, has a lot of experience with this, so maybe he would be willing to help participate in that, that idea. Great. Yeah. All right, on the list. Next, next suggestion. Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri. I'd love to learn more about using FFmpeg as a diagnostic tool, as well as for encoding and streaming. Courtney. Yeah, FFmpeg is the engine that runs a lot of encoders and decoders. Uh, It's been a command line interface forever, and there a a lot of people have written, uh, uh, you know, a graphical UI front end for it. But uh, it's very deep, very capable, and uh, I think it's open source now. So uh, it would be interesting to me too to explore the nooks and crannies of FFmpeg 
to do the undiscovered uh, tricks that it can do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those open source projects, uh, there are huge communities that work on them. Um, and that means that they are constantly evolving. The best part of that is that even if some new codec comes out, uh, that robust community of people working on the underlying technology means you'll probably won't have to wait too long before it accommodates the new stuff too, as the H.264 or 65, 67, whatever's coming changes. You won't have to wait too long. Uh, the downside is that, that and it's not a big downside, but things are changing all the time. So if you get something that's set up and you have a workflow that's particular and uses this as a tool, you may get to the point where suddenly you have to wait a little bit for it to catch up. I've been in both circumstances, but it certainly is an underpinning technology to a lot of what people do in video and things like that. So I think it's a beautifully worthy topic. Let's move to the next question. Next uh, topic from Bob Sturdivan in San Antonio, Texas. How about a discussion on making a video project of the roles played by office hours with follow-on projects covering training and proper onboarding procedures? Sky. I love the idea of doing a project together because that way you get to know each other. And I've had the great fortune of, of volunteering and participating with humans around the world. And it's just been a, a tremendous community building and, and self uh, self-fulfilling uh, encouragement um i'm i am concerned about the the uh specific of training or uh, doing videos about onboarding because i was stumbled across um the founder of mid-journey and he was doing a online thing yesterday and his comment was he hates to make too many rules because they're pivoting and changing so rapidly and even he made the point about making laws that they're going to change in three months and so consequently, I love the idea of doing videos together. I'm not sure where and how we can best support our community in, in getting the information. So that's my thoughts. Love Liberty. that idea. Oops, excuse me. Liberty. So I read this as um, like, say, when NAM or any of these projects or even our back end team right now, almost as a as like a spotlight where they might come on and talk through their roles. We can ask questions and learn from them. You know, folks like a, a JJ who he's out there and he does this, but he does so much in the community as well. And there being an opportunity for um, him just walking through training and shadowing. So almost like monthly or quarterly certain roles that, especially roles that we want to fill <laughs> in the community and and dedicating an episode or a show to that. That's how I read it. Yeah, I, I will note that Alex just articulated, was it on one of these, it may have been on Monday, that he's open to the idea of making some sort of little compensation thing so that people who create training can get something out of it. I will say that my experiences with the Office Hours Band, which have been fabulous and so fulfilling, and I've loved doing that. But it get there have been times when you just go, I can't spend the time it takes to work at the level I want on something that I'm getting no compensation for whatsoever. My, you know, my my wife and my family and and, and my business require time, and I never want to make that too much. But in the future, there may be ways. Um, I just, you know, trying to get professional work in training and um 
proper onboarding procedures. They, you know, people are doing the work and then having them document and create content that talks about how to do the work at the same time you're doing the work can be an awfully big burden. So I hope as Alex continues to figure out how to get people involved and keep them involved, that we can get more and more of these things done. Um, it just right now we're all on a volunteer basis and everybody has to protect their livelihoods as well. Next question. And here he is, Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, suggesting Jonas Dottel on the state of Raspberry Pi and other such devices and play out. Courtney. Yeah, that'd be interesting because software players uh, is a, which Jonas, of course, has with Playout B that runs on both the Mac and the PC and on the Raspberry Pi. Uh, it's an interesting topic whether uh, you could use it within your current uh, you know, computer that's running Zoom, et cetera, to play out on a second screen or a third screen uh, with just uh, perhaps some hotkey controls so you don't have to look at the screen or click on the mouse to do something to play it out. Or it interfaces like uh, Playout B does to the ATEM switcher itself. So when you switch to something, it starts to play out. That's a very handy feature to have. And so any kind of uh, second hour on software development in uh, in the use of video playout uh, to incorporate all the features that we need and to do that in a, you know, in a show. Uh, let's see. Is there anybody else on there? Sorry, I was doing, uh, there we go. No, next, next suggestion. Suggestion from Jeff Keithley in Texas. How about more structured behind the scenes of events we can share so more people can see how it's done? Uh, Sky. I'd love that. And Jeff, I'd be happy to work with you on that. The, the again, the question is each show has a video component, audio component, and a connection component. So maybe that's the the base structure. But again, is it a big show? Is it a small show? Is it a live show? Is it a hybrid show? So those are, again, the categories of, of that. Um, I, I think that'd be a brilliant idea. Yeah, I think, you know, this has been a remarkable place and that I've never been someplace else that produces content that is so open to letting people see how the content is produced. We have, you know, we have after hours, we have we, an open call for people who want to come in and examine the back end and be a part of it and learn how it works. Um, and so um, the seeing how it done, there, there are lots of opportunities already. I hope they continue and, um, you know, just follow the pathway, uh, you know, start off on discord and get in the discord and ask about opportunities. And you will find people all the time going, we, we, can use more volunteers to do this and that, but uh, structured behind the scenes. I think Alex has always been a hundred percent behind that idea. And I think we will see more of them in the coming years. Uh, next suggestion. Oh, Courtney, do you have a last thought on that? Uh, I was just going to think, even if we don't uh, um, create any behind the scenes uh, stuff ourselves, but just uh, to get the panel together and to make a list of great behind the scenes uh Documents that we've uh, documentaries that we've seen on the making of films, et cetera. I watched the behind the scenes of Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's, which was fascinating for stop motion animation. Uh, and so, if we could get together and, and list the ones that we've seen, so that we could kind of generate a viewing list of great behind the scenes stuff. Courtney, was this? Oh wait, I think that's the one. That was me. That was me. Talking yeah, sorry, it just popped up for me. So there, there I think a little, a little confusion. All right, next suggestion. 
Uh, Jesse Mills, San Francisco Bay Area, would like to hear from others who are system designers and builders of the modern AV production systems. Topics could include video over IP, control, automation, hybrid, video conferencing. Happy to offer my time. Jesse, thank you. And be careful, you've raised your hand and people around here tend to see that and go, yes, please come in and do it. So uh, you're on the list now, Liberty. I'm going to get this by the end of the show. Um, this is a great uh, suggestion. And I, I wonder, too, if parts of it also um, go into like Friday, the logistics side and and pulling that together. So it probably could tow um, could tow both lines. But I would love to um, dive deeper into that logistics part as well. Yeah, I think everybody here, you know, no matter which niche we came out of for our training, the fact that we are now involved in a digital show on the web, there's been so much to learn. And all the things you're talking about, uh, AV production systems, uh, video over IP control automation, I've had to go from zero to, to at least understanding the language of them in all those areas. It's been fun. But that's part of what the show does. So, yeah, I definitely support that. Uh, next suggestion. Next suggestion from Jeff Kaithley in Texas. Demo of AI-assisted camera tracking. I know a guy that can help. And we know Jeff. So, Jeff, somebody, yeah, they, they, hopefully it has been now written down on the official list of topics to consider. And uh, let's see where it goes from there. So, good suggestion. Next suggestion. Next suggestion in from Tom Ferguson, Phoenix, Arizona. Steady cams, gimbals, sliders. Oh my. <laughs> We've talked about camera movement in, in more than a few shows, but yeah, it's always fun to do. Uh, you know, visual examples of what the difference is, where they work, where they don't work. It's been interesting to me to see that for a while um, uh, we talked about cranes and things like that but cranes have been at least somewhat supplanted by uh drones and other kind of flyable platforms there's still a place for both of them in the world but when is that you know if you've got a strong wind maybe the the large scale uh jib is a better tool than a drone but maybe in, in a lot of cases you can get by with a drone where you needed a really expensive rental jib so uh, things are changing out there jesse your thoughts uh, we're seeing several questions throughout this conversation that point to, like, there's an underpinning to them that um, while the show is built around these uh, really clean shots that are locked into a, a very clean frame, a lot of these suggestions feel like they're built around uh, three camera coverage of demonstrations and also perhaps even pre-produced materials that plays back at the top of an hour or something like that. It feels like um, this is a huge, this is, you know, unpacking a whole nother box, but it feels like that uh, there might be room for a conversation about um, not, not ground up format changes, but other ways we can approach the entire program to accommodate the requests for things like uh, behind the scenes coverage of something that might not be happening during office hours. Uh, gimbals, Steadicam workshops need to leave this shot, um, but there might be room for something like that and hopefully room for that conversation. Absolutely, Courtney. Yeah, second hour on moving camera and how to move it in a non-annoying way, I would appreciate. Um, see, we could do a comparison of optical image stabilization versus electronic image stabilization with more and more cameras getting higher resolution sensors. Um, 
it's a lot easier to do electronic image stabilization and things like GoPros, little tiny cameras that don't have room for a lot of electromechanical devices inside there. So uh, it is, and it, it has gotten quite good. Image stabilization, electronic image stabilization has come a very long way and it's getting smarter and smarter all along. Tom Ferguson. And even alternatives to some of these suggestions, uh, like the Steadicam and so forth. I saw a guy do a demo on a one wheel with a long pole, and he actually zoomed the camera or actually stuck the camera right through the open windows in a car. And it was an amazing shot. There you go. Mitchell? And to Courtney's point, it'd be cool to learn the language on set if you're in a film set. Um, how do they describe what the moves are and what they're doing? Like camera moves in or give me a Mickey Rooney or whatever uh, the, the, the nomenclature. It'd be kind of fun to learn. Yeah, nothing shows you up as somebody who hasn't been on a set very much than not understanding that a uh, particular move is called a particular thing. So, uh, you know, if you if you truck right and you don't know what that is and uh, it, it kind of diminishes your cred on a set. So, yeah, I, I believe all of that. Let's go on to the next suggestion. John Feiler from Greenville, Massachusetts, asking anyone interested in covering training videos like screencast or just shadowing a worker with a phone. Liberty White. Training videos. I was trying to find a statistic and the only one that I could I saw was like it's a 20 billion dollar industry of like training employees, HR, um, thinking about we've done some work with companies that work for construction sites for safety and just thinking about health. And so there that could be broken down into like the styles of of training videos. There are so many content creators that uh, when I watch them, I'm like, oh, I like that technique that they've used. So even like from the all the way from the content creator style tools and how they do it all the way to actually training from uh, for larger organizations. And that also encompasses, you know, VR and that part of the conversation as well. So there's so many different ways um, that could take place. And then even what makes a great training video, like just keeping it really simple. So there are different ways that we can take that kind of show and concept. That's where I came from, Sky. Well, and I, I'm finding that Jesse and I are very, you know, attracted to the narrative and the documentary and the cinematic. But it, the other day, I'm helping my son build something when he's tough shed, and I just wanted the information. And I didn't need a big 30-minute cinematic. I just needed to know where to put the nail. Yeah, but those things are changing, too. It's interesting. When I did the Final Cut training for here, uh, one of our largest discussions was how to chapterize or point to individual packets go. of content so that in the respect of a 45-minute training program, how do you let somebody who's coming in get to the piece of that content that they want to access? Because they don't want to see the opening. They don't want to see the closing. They don't want to see the other hundred topics that you covered. Just where do you put They the want this topic. And there is a that process that exists on the web and through tagging and things like that that allow you to do that now that we could never do when I was doing that kind of training contract. Uh, content well, in the again, corporate the equipment world. has been, you know, the, the price of equipment, the ability, and also it, well, unfortunately, my son was saying in trying to build this shed concept, he was overwhelmed with too much information. So good yeah. and clean, accurate information is, is a part of the writing as a part of the content. And as you say, in, if you can't find it, 
it's worthless. So the right. the, the, the notation and it needs to be searchable. Is. So you've got to have some kind of a system where you can do a text prompt Sorry, and say, we're getting I'm, off the topic, but these are refinements of what I'd like to see in a second hour. Yeah. Okay, good. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking a deep dive into Mimo Live and integrating it into a larger production pipelines. Oliver's going to help us. Um, that's that's going to be a very deep dive. Uh, <laughs> so um, I've I've done that in in the past on on uh, after hours and uh, uh, or the predecessor to that. Um, uh, and uh, I always find that there's so many topics that I could discuss that I'm I'm very, you know, what what should I do? So um, if if you want to have specific things, um, then. Then uh, that would, uh, gla- uh, you know, certainly help if uh, people could submit, sub- uh, you know, specific um, show use cases that they want to dive into. I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. Okay. Uh, next question. Jeff Keithley from Texas. Demo of real robotic camera setups and the differences between those and pan tilt zooms. And again, he knows some people. Courtney. That would be great because uh, motion control cameras are used in visual effects all the time. And uh, it is an art into itself, programming a camera so that it can do a repeat the same move over and over a hundred times, right down to the a fraction of a millimeter is uh, pretty amazing. Uh, so yeah, having an expert on to discuss that and how it's used and how uh, it can be used to incorporate uh, special visual effects with multiple passes is interesting. Absolutely. And that thing I was trying to think of is actually under the heading of content searchability. So if Josh is still back there listening, put that down on the list and see if anybody else is interested in voting it up. Uh, Next idea. Next idea coming in from Douglas Carmichael, building audience engagement and how to keep it. There you go. That's always, you know, you produce this stuff. You need to engage with the audience because there's nothing worse than doing a lot of work putting out there and nobody's interested. So good good topic, Douglas. Let's go to the next one. Tom Ferguson in Phoenix, Arizona, and right here, which lens is the right one for the job? Boy, there's a lot of work to be done there because there are so many lenses that can be used on uh, to create content these days. Mitchell, what are your thoughts? As I said earlier, my friend who works over at a rental shop, he knows lenses. And the better part is he has actually has them. So if you need a, a set of Cook Primes worth about three, dollars $400,000, he can uh, open them up and show you exactly what they are and what they do. Courtney. Yeah, this is becoming less of a problem with computational photography because there's so much stuff that they can do after the light goes through the lens to the image uh, that... It, it bears, uh, you know, it's less important these days than it has been in the past. But however, starting with the right lens uh, is is an important topic, I suppose. Uh, next area. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Wirecast, I use it daily with great success, but hardly hear of it on office hours. I would like to dive deeper. Duly noted. Um, again, with all of these, we're gonna we're gonna put them into the mix. The individual uh, areas, the people who uh, are in charge of content for different day parts and things like that, we'll all put them into the mix. I think we also put a lot of these into Discord. And I don't know if there's a specific uh, coming up, but that's another place where you can kind of self vote for uh, this topic should be important. And I know Alex pays a lot of attention to that part of Discord. So remember to not just uh, articulate it here, and that's great, and we're glad you're doing that but also reflect it, if you really want to see it, reflect it into Discord so there's a more permanent uh, listing of it. So, uh, next area. 
John Feiler from Greenville, Massachusetts. I was just hired full-time to manage the facilities of a marker space. I'd be happy to volunteer to help do some making hours here or in after hours if the community is interested. A maker space, those areas where I think people can go in and get access to uh, 3D printers and things like that. So that would be really excited. And I know we've talked about that a good little bit. Jesse? Uh, this is one of those forest from the trees things that is extremely exciting. Like we, we all know makerspaces exist. People who work at makerspaces know they exist. But uh, getting more eyes on the fact that you can basically have anything you've ever wanted in your entire life fabricated with uh, relative, extremely high quality. I think this could be a very, very exciting second hour regularly throughout the year. Oliver? Yeah, we uh, we actually built a lot of um, live streaming equipment with 3D printers now. So um, we've done, uh, you know, uh, little control devices for cameras and things like that. Yeah, it's a it's a burgeoning industry. I was getting to the point where I was thinking that at some point houseware stores will just disappear, and you will go in and set your pattern and then uh, pick them up at the maker space at where some huge 3d printer just prints out exactly what you want. Uh, eliminate a lot of costs in terms of shipping things around the world. Uh, so interesting topic. I think that's definitely in our wheelhouse. Let's go on to the next one. Tom Ferguson from Phoenix, Arizona, selecting the right camera for the job. Mitchell. I know a guy, he's a DP and he could do it. Jesse. Uh, this this feels like it's tethered to the picking the right lens for the job. And the thought I had on that one was uh, we we don't always have to be forward looking. We can go back and talk about, you know, uh, still photography from 50 years ago and have a little bit of fun in that arena, too. Sky, I, I think this should be the question that's asked of every every topic. And rather than because I'm very giddy about the shiny new thing. And that's often where I get chased into. And this reminds me of the DP that does not own a camera because he wants to use the right tool to tell the story the right way rather than selling the camera. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Why 8K? Consumer electronic vendors are pushing 8K, but is 8K relevant for production? And will clients demand 8K? Uh, Mitch, can you grab that for a second? I just lost a screen here. It must be something still in the lines coming into the house. No so. problem. I got it. Uh, Jesse, Thanks. you're up. Uh, just thinking about that, uh, the, the 8K and will clients need it? Uh, second hour is discussing how, how to introduce clients to technical specifications without uh, them glazing over within two minutes would also be useful, I believe. Yeah, and it's funny, uh, the whole subject of uh, 8K is how much of it is marketing push and how much is, it is practical. I noticed that with 4K, did it, it really was slow in coming and then it came fast. So when people are uh, looking for 8K these days, it looks like uh, it's on the horizon or on the radar screen, but not quite uh, there yet. And the other thing is not a lot of cameras can make 8K as far as the high-end cameras go. Courtney? Yeah, it's largely marketing at, at the current time. And, and a look at uh, whether or not it's even practical would be a good second hour. You know, if you once you look at the bandwidth required to shoot, store, edit, and transmit 8K, uh, it may not be practical if you analyze all of those uh, elements in the pipeline to deliver uh, such a high resolution signal. Yeah, thanks. Go, I got panel yeah, feedback. Yeah, go ahead. So. Uh, no problem at all. Um, so those are 
Those are the two for that. Are we heading to the next question? Sure. Sky Gleason from Seattle asking, where does visual storytelling fit into the video for an office hour, second hour? Can we talk about DPs and directors about visual image capturing for storytelling? Yeah, absolutely. You can talk about it, Sky. Well, we've we've kind of glanced over this and, and I didn't realize Jesse was a brother from another mother. So that uh, the concept of being too excited about um, the visual sometimes you 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 don't need uh words to tell a story and so to tell an entire story that you can understand without a uh and it's its own language so i'd love to have more people help me understand the the language of visual arts courtney this might be a better after hours uh uh topic because doing it uh, on a live youtube stream is difficult without showing examples of uh you know how visual you know camera moves framing etc uh, adds to storytelling without showing great examples and i'm afraid we'd get into a lot of copyright strikes if we uh, showed a lot of great examples from movies or television you know so yeah, that's maybe after hours would be better yeah it could be i will say that it's interesting when you've been around uh movie making or content creation for a lot and you you start to realize that it needs to be written in the script because if not, then the idea doesn't exist. But when it comes time to execute the script, your thought of, I need a camera here panning to the right there to, to show this, sometimes dialogue can be done by the presenter or actor with a look or a movement or something. And sometimes I have found, you know, we can cut these whole lines out of that and just have them be able to see the next step rather than in the script we had to describe the next step in language and that is part of the magic of movie making you know I've, I've seen directors in the field go we don't need any of this dialogue just show each other you love them and there's no reason to tell them so and maybe maybe both and maybe to yeah, Courtney, courtney's point so we don't get you know hung up on on lawsuits but uh well, those soft skills of content creation where it's not all, you know, some people are process oriented and they focus on trying to do the script exactly as the script is written. A lot of times really good content crafters start with a script and then find better ways, more shorthand ways, more impactful ways to do it than just going by the structure of the script. It's an interesting topic. I find it interesting whether or not other people do or whether we not we can show that is is a fair discussion. Let's move on to the next one. John Filer, Greenville, Greenfield, Massachusetts, asking, how about covering brainstorming with icons on a slide deck? Maybe collaborative brainstorming on shared Google Slides with real-time feedback. Yeah, brainstorming is an interesting thing. I've I've been hired a couple of times to go into corporate circumstances and be part of a panel just because I think weirdly. And I think they thought he'll bring in something that nobody else will. Uh, you know, brainstorming is an interesting, it's it, in part about assembling the group. If you've ever been a focus group, it's really interesting to see how different people approach the same problem. So uh, brainstorming, I think, is an interesting area. So it's on the list now. Next question. Robert Green from Los Angeles, California. Are there many of these suggestions leading to some sort of office hours field trip or more after hours labs? Uh, Mitchell, take us away. I think it's uh, very likely both are true. I mean, uh, there are situations where 
showing something that's going on somewhere else, not necessarily taking everybody to a location. And certainly the uh, doing a lab um, is very complimentary, as Courtney was mentioning earlier. So I think it, uh, I think it would certainly work well. Yeah, remember, we were born in the pandemic where nobody could go anywhere. And it's it's great seeing these circumstances where we get to see other people. I though agree with Al- what Alex has articulated, which is that it it limits the number of people who can get up and go someplace always limits the people who can be directly involved in any let's go here and do this thing. I tremendously love the time we could do that, like with the rocket launches and things like that. And I've had a great time. But for every person who gets to be involved, there's probably 25 people who can't find the circumstance to get to a location to do that. So I think it's always going to be more. But yeah, why not? Next. Oh, Sky, did you have something to say? As, as say? a free as a freelancer, I got to go into lots of other people's facilities and no two were the same. And consequently, I thought these were the humans that knew how to and they'd fixed all of the problems and they were just working with the equipment they had and the engineering and the talent they had for the clients they were serving. And so I love this idea of, uh, and that's kind of what we're doing virtually, but to do it in person, maybe there's a yes and. Okay, next question. Bob Sturdivant from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, His comment is, how about a guest speaker to show editing? Found this guy edits on YouTube and found it very informative. Uh, Yeah, Courtney? Yeah, maybe we could get that guy who edits to <laughs> participate in our shootout between editorial platforms. That we I know that guy, and I will uh, ping him and see if he's interested in working with us. Great guy, Los Angeles editor, and uh, I'll mention his name so nobody. But anyway, yeah, he has a fine channel. If you haven't seen this guy edit, he talks about he sits in a chair with scenes in front of him and explains his thinking about pacing the juxtaposition of scenes, why something's missing there and what he thinks needs to be done. And then he actually does it. It's a great sense. Nice guy. And yeah, we'll figure that out. Jesse. It feels like this program is built around um, welcoming guests on it. And I'm wondering what the impediment, it seems like there would naturally be uh, at least three guests a week of, you know, like, like that kind of guess that you're describing this guy edits. And I'm wondering what's keeping that from happening. Is that, that there's nobody, there's no producer who's working on booking guests because it feels like such a natural fit. It is. And it's not that Alex has been um, cautious about turning this into a complicated show of expectations of all these guests and things like that until the back end was locked down and we knew what we were doing and we had enough uh, crew quality and everything else. So that as the show gets more popular and gets presented to more and more people, we're locked down on the process. I think he's always been heading here to higher profile, more guest oriented and more expertise oriented. But I just think he did that slowly. These are my opinions. I can't speak for him surely, but that's what it's felt like of being on the inside of uh, listening to how this thing has grown over the course of the last two and a half years. So I think we'll get there. Uh, next question. Next uh, topic from Tom Ferguson in Phoenix, Arizona. Video editing, a second hour of tips and techniques to this professional art. Even better, a follow-up lab. Tom Ferguson uh, doesn't have, uh, let's see. Oh, okay. I'm looking at the wrong thing. Sorry about that. A window got in the way. Uh, Mitch Hill. 
Yeah, I'll just uh, jump in. Um, I'm a little reluctant to support a shootout because a shootout has negative connotations to it. Uh, it's almost religion, too. It's, you know, an avid editor uh, may uh, look down their nose at a, a premier editor, and they all have their, their high points and low points. It's better to just put, the, uh, put it out there as a separate uh, um, segment for premier and uh, you know, final cut, et cetera. Um, rather than have these guys shooting it out with each other. It's not sort of office hours attitude. Point taken. Next question. Uh, Tom Ferguson. Yeah, I wasn't talking about a shootout. I was talking about more of the techniques that they use, J-cuts and other types of uh, interesting techniques to make the video more interesting. Absolutely. Jesse Kessler. And not not a shootout approach, but each of these tools has something unique about them. And to do a second hour on what you can only get when you're cutting in Final Cut Pro X, or what you can only get in DaVinci Resolve, could be very interesting. Not you know not not a competitive thing, but just like what what's the little turnkey in this piece of software? Well, that does make some sense. What are the what are the strengths? You know, maybe do twenty minutes of the strengths of each as a presentation on if you're. Cutting in this, uh, a fine editor who knows what he's doing or she's doing or they're doing uh, will approach it this way. And uh, on this tool, a different editor using a different tool will approach it a different way and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that'd be interesting. Uh, Courtney? Yeah, and the shootout, I mean, basically to determine which application is best for which market, you know, which, what's best for cutting TV, what's best for cutting corporate, what's best for cutting YouTube videos, what's best for, you know cutting each yeah. individual type of uh, of product. Yeah, that does. That, it, well, so on the list, let's move on to the next topic. Douglas Carmichael, making the most of your phone for shooting on the fly. Jesse Kester has a thought. Uh, we don't just need to keep it to shooting on the fly. We can also talk about integrating your phone into a production pipeline. Sky Gleason. A uh, gentleman here in Seattle referred to the iPhone or, you know, shoot with the, the phone that you have in your, are they camera that you have in your hand if it happens to be a phone use it yeah uh, courtney yeah a whole second hour on how to turn your phone horizontally ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, then you'll find out they're shooting for a uh store in-store display that is vertical itself uh oliver yeah i was i was i was about to say you know or get used to the fact that there is portrait video out there. <laughs> yeah, it, it, this has been tough. I mean, there was almost a religious divide of never, ever, 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 ever under any circumstances shoot vertical. And uh, I've seen a lot of people bend that attitude because there's just so many use cases for video now. And I mentioned that because I used to do a lot of work for major malls in, in, in my area. And a lot of them outside of, you know, Forever 21 have a vertical display. And I was suddenly asked to make content even 10, 15 years ago. I was asked to produce vertical video specifically for that signage. And it was a good, nice, lucrative market for a while. Jesse. Um, about that, a lot of clients have been asking us to shoot, uh, to be ready to post horizontally and vertically, and I think a second hour on on how to approach a physical production that's going out into radically different formats would be valuable. Yeah, I did a I did one of our early video shows on uh, one of my earlier Thursdays. I addressed some of that, but I agree with you. It is more complex. There are more outlets for things. Um, 
and there are different sensors now where, you know, protecting for the center square so that you have an equivalent image in horizontal and vertical that you could pull out of that makes you a little psychotic as a shooter because you're constantly going, you're constantly flipping back and forth. And I don't want to put everything dead center in every frame, but that means that I have to think, does it work here? And does it work wide? Does it work tall? Does it work wide? And I found that challenging as someone operating the uh, capture device. Let's move on to the next one, but that's a good, good topic. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Austin Texas, uh, Q uh, Sensitive Music. Courtney talking about his life story in Austin and Hollywood as it relates to video and the teleprompter. You want to do a life story so we can like go back to uh, who was the guy Edward R. Murrow who did This Is Your Life? It was somebody I can't remember. It was Ralph Edwards. Yeah. Ralph Edwards. This is I your think life. maybe Ralph Edwards Jr. If we could dig him up, maybe <laughs> we could find, he could interview me for something. Yeah. I'm always interested in, in talking about myself, but <laughs> conversations with Tony Yikes. Mobley go there. You can find a long one, an hour long one already. All right. Well, anyway, so thank you for asking. Um, let's move on to the next topic. Uh, Douglas Carmichael, moving from the HDMI world to the SDI world and what you need to know, synchronizing all the inputs to a common time base, etc. Uh, Oliver? Um, why not move to NDI or, you know, video IP when you add it? Okay. I missed a note here and I apologize to you all. And uh, somebody in the back end was suggesting that if I stopped on time, they would fix everything else on the back end. So we're actually running a couple of minutes over and I apologize to you for that. Um, we will take care of everything else at another time. Thank you all for participating in this. It has been so cool to get your ideas. And hopefully we will see many of these topics in the show in the coming first quarter. Uh, great job panel as always. This is impossible without a, an, an absolutely august panel. And we certainly had this today. Oliver, it's great to see you too. Haven't seen you in a long time. So it's great to have you back on the panel uh, and everybody else. To all of you uh, in the producer's core, uh, those of you who are watching the show who have had these great suggestions for today. Thank you so very, very much. This show is driven by you and without your suggestions, it's nothing. So we appreciate that. And of course, we were never going to forget our back-end people, the people behind the scenes who you will see on the credit roll that's coming up here momentarily. They are the heart and soul of a big part of what we do. Don't forget, tomorrow we continue with brainstorming, but this time media infrastructure, all the support that makes production possible. So logistics, power, infrastructure, crews, that kind of stuff. Uh, Saturday, we're brainstorming education. So for those of you who are involved in the education topics, come for that. And uh, Alex even says we're going to brainstorm introspection. So that'll be an interesting philosophical discussion next Saturday. Thank you for watching. Thank you for being here. See you next time, which is tomorrow or in after hours. And we should send Bill 811 million bananas. <laughs> what, 89,649 miles for the Tlaloc traversal? Why can't I say that? We can do That's a second hour on drifting sink. <laughs> I'm going to find my blow dryer and take it outside to my connections and see if I can dry everything off in the hopes that I don't have this delay problem anymore. I don't think that's your problem. I think it's inside the house. Look how bad it's, it's inside, inside the house. house. Oh. <laughs> Here. Slash your cliches for 100, Alex. Bye, everybody. <laughs>